Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. I'm your guest host for our series this fall that focuses on today's debates and discussions in civil military relations. In 1973, the U.S. military transitioned from a conscript model to an all-volunteer, all-recruited force. While we have had much to celebrate in the 50 years since its inception, 1973 also marked a critical transition across the Department of Defense that is often less appreciated, the introduction of what we call the total force. This new policy, an intentional blending of the capabilities of the active duty, National Guard, and Reserve forces, effectively ensured that, should the United States enter a prolonged conflict in the post-Vietnam era, the Guard and the Reserves would have to be mobilized to participate. In effect, the total force policy of the 1970s helped to set the stage to turn the National Guard and Reserve forces from a strategic reserve to an operational one with long-lasting consequences for civil-military relations. Yet these three components, National Guard, Reserve, and the active duty, still retain separate missions and identities, even as they overlap with others. National Guard units were called out to support civilian law enforcement during the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and were federalized to conduct riot suppression after the insurrection on January 6th. Individual reservists and National Guard units alike have supported combat operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other regions of the globe, while Guard units have been deployed by governors to the southern border to conduct homeland security missions. Indeed, many of the most difficult conversations around the roles and responsibilities of the Guard, Reserve, and Active Duty deal with domestic policing. When is it the responsibility of the military to help support domestic law and order? What are the rules and norms around using the active duty military in domestic situations? Should the U.S. military be using force against Americans at all? Here to help us think through these issues is Dr. Lindsey Kahn, Associate Professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Before joining the Naval War College, she was a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow working in counterterrorism at the Department of Defense, an Assistant Professor at the University of Northern Iowa, a Postdoctoral Fellow at the SICE Center for Transatlantic Relations and the Berlin SWP, and a Predoctoral Fellow at Harvard's Olin Institute for Strategic Studies. Her work focuses on civil-military relations, particularly issues of personnel and recruiting, public opinion, domestic policing and militarization, and democratic norms and government. She holds a Ph.D. in political science from Duke. But most importantly for us, she is currently working on a monograph on the normative theory of a democratic military professional ethic and a book project on the civil-military relations of domestic use of federal force for policing in the United States. Dr. Khan, welcome to the program. 
Hi, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start off with just a kind of basic definition of the roles and responsibilities of these three different components of the total force, the guard, the reserve, and the active duty. Can you give us a sense of, you know, who's responsible for what and and what are these three components? Well, it's not actually divided up necessarily by um, specific missions or roles. Basically, what you have, as you pointed out so so clearly, you have a total force policy which integrates all of these components together um, and basically makes them all focus on the same mission. But they are organized differently and have sort of different modalities. The active force, of course, is the full-time force, and they are the ones who are immediately deployable or um, in, in some sense immediately deployable. The reserve forces tend to be where a lot of uh, specialties and capabilities are that um, improve or uh, do better when someone is able to practice them in the civilian world all the time. So a lot of specialties like um, medical personnel or engineering or airlift and things like that tend to be in the reserves. Um, and then the National Guard um, is where a lot of um, sort of extra combat capacity is located. Um, the reserves and National Guard, of course, both part-time forces that are required to do some drilling and required to have some connection to uh, an organizational structure so that they can be called up um, when needed to augment the active component. What is the origin of the total force policy? Why did we switch to this policy after the Vietnam War? So there is um, a sort of mythos surrounding this uh, question, and I, I call it a mythos because um, there is a story there that has been told by some people who uh, ought to know, but that story has been disputed by other people who ought to know. So the, the mythos is that uh, Creighton Abrams, after the Vietnam War, um, was upset that um, President Johnson had been able to fight that war without mobilizing the National Guard. Um, and he did that, uh, President Johnson did that, primarily because he did not want to signal either domestically or internationally that this was a big war, that this was um, sort of a, a main effort. He wanted to keep it limited. Uh, and he also wanted to sort of avoid mobilizing political opposition to his policies. Um, and the, the mythos is that Creighton Abrams was unhappy about this and felt that it was inappropriate. And so he came up with the total force policy in order to tie the president's hands and force him to mobilize um, the guard uh, and reserves for any major military operation that the president wanted. This story is disputed. Um, and I think credibly disputed, the much more convincing, I mean, to me as a political scientist, much more convincing argument is that it was almost entirely budgetary. That um, basically at the end of the Vietnam War, you still wanted to draw down to demobilize, you know, there had been a large mobilization and a draft, obviously, and you wanted to draw down and demobilize. Because there was still a Cold War going on, you couldn't draw down to pre-World War II levels the way that you might want to. Um, but you also couldn't afford to keep all of the capabilities and capacity that you needed on active duty. And so the idea was to still maintain a capacity, but not have to pay for all of it. So make a lot of it part time. 
Uh, and so this is why a lot of these capabilities were moved from the active component into the guard and reserves, basically in order to maintain a large existing uh, military capability that wouldn't have to be sort of created de novo, um, but not be as expensive as a standing force would be. So instead of Abrams' revenge, it's Abrams' efficiencies. Yes. Now, you mentioned as part of this mythos that Johnson didn't want to call up the Guard and the Reserve during the Vietnam War because he was concerned that this would strip people out of communities, that it would be a signal to the public. Today, it seems like we we have almost the reverse, where a draft is seen as politically suicidal for any politician potentially going to war while calling up the reserves and the guard is seen as somewhat normal or even uh, expected in uh, long wars and kind of wartime situations. How did we get here? That is such a good question. Um, my colleague, uh, my colleagues Jessica, Jessica Blankshane and Doug Kreiner and I have um, just published a piece recently uh, looking at this question to a certain extent, trying to figure out um, how the American public feels about the call-up of the reserves and the National Guard versus a potential draft call-up. And yes, we find very much that the public finds calling up the reserves and the Guard totally normal. Like they, they don't bat an eye. It's been going on for a long time now, etc. Um, but they do very much object to the idea of a draft. So we know that in the snapshot of time that is now, and we know that at the time during Vietnam, the widespread belief was that calling up the National Guard um, would have major political blowback effects. Now, we can't go back and do um, any examination to, to see how people felt sort of in a relative sense. Why did this change happen? Um, Jessica Blankshane and I have done some further research to try and tease that out. There are two main explanations we can think of. One is is sort of prospect theory, right, that people have gotten so used to the call-up of the Guard and Reserves that they no longer consider it costly, whereas they haven't seen a draft in a long time. And so because that's weird and different, that would be seen as costly. Mm -hmm. That is plausible, but we don't find a lot of support for it empirically. It's hard to test, though, so we can't really dismiss it as an, as an option. The other explanation for which we find more support is, and, and this is something also that uh, Ron Krebs and Robert Ralston uh, and some of their co-authors have found, is that the American public just really dislikes the idea of coercion. They really, they have a very deep-seated sense that consent is important in the sphere of military action. And so one of the things that we think is happening there is that um, even though Guard and Reserve personnel uh, being mobilized means that the situation is being made prominent or salient to a larger uh, proportion of society, they don't view it as that costly because these people volunteered. That's fascinating. So the transition to a total force policy, because it was combined with the transition to the all-volunteer force, may have actually changed the way in which Americans then view a draft and view the, the role of the Guard and the Reserve? That's possible, but Americans have never liked the draft. It's <laughs> never been popular. Um, there have been times when it has been, you know, 
tolerated and uh, and some certainly some segments of the population view it as a solution to certain types of problems. Um, so it's not that no one likes it, but the American public in general has never been supportive of a draft. Um, pretty much every time we've had one, there have been riots, there has been evasion. Um, it's never been a highly popular policy. Uh, and the only time that it's really been tolerated well is times when we have, uh, I mean, basically World War II. <laughs> that's, that, that's it. <laughs> that's that, it. That was the only time that, that the American public was like, yeah, we can see why we need a draft. The, the, all the rest of, uh, you know, the Civil War, obviously, World War I, there was a lot of draft resistance in World War I because many Americans did not think that that was a war the U.S. needed to be involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, Korea, there was some draft evasion, obviously Vietnam. Um, yeah. So anyway, the uh, the American public has never really liked the idea of non-consensual military service. Um, so moving and, and it's important to keep in mind that even under a draft, most of the U.S. military was not draftees. It was always a supplementary policy in the United States. The only time that we really had um, most of the military made up of draftees was World War One and World War Two. Now, I want to get back to this kind of concept of the National Guard. I'm fascinated because the National Guard has kind of dual and multiple authorities that it operates under. And so the uh, National Guard is responsible to the governor of the state, um, but then also occasionally is, quote, federalized, right? And then big responds to the president of the United States. What is this kind of term federalization? What does it mean to yank a National Guard from a governor and decide that, you know, okay, you're mine now and I have federalized you? Yeah, so there are three statuses that National Guard members can operate under. One is called state active duty. So National Guard members are always part-time volunteers. Um, but if they volunteered to be in the National Guard as opposed to the uh, Federal Army Reserve or Air Force Reserve or you know any of the um, Armed Forces Reserves or the um, active component, if they volunteered to be in the National Guard, then they have volunteered to sort of serve their state. Um, and they can be in state active duty, which is when they are under command of the governor, they are funded by the state. Um, and it's usually for disaster relief, but can be, as you mentioned, for border deployments, uh, homeland defense, uh, and they can carry uh, they can be mobilized for law enforcement purposes. Um, but this is basically this status is the manifestation of the original form of the state militia, which was basically for a long time, just sort of a list of people that the governor could um, sort of call up and mobilize if and when there was uh, some kind of crisis that could not be handled by the existing authorities or, or structure. But then there's a second um, sort of on the other end is federalized status or uh, active duty status. And this is based in the Constitution, uh, based in the calling out clause um, that basically said we... The, the United States, the federal entity, is recognizing that the states can form their own militias. But sometimes the federal government, this group of us, is going to need that manpower. And so the federal government can call out those militias to federal service, to serve the purposes of the federal government instead of the purposes of the state government. Um, and that happens under Title X of the U.S. Code. And basically, that means that they are they are doing a federal mission. They are 
paid for by the federal government. They have exactly the same status as active duty people. They get the same benefits and the same pay as active duty people. When they're on state active duty, they are essentially state employees and they have the same status as any other state employees and the same pay and benefits. And so that varies wildly from state to state. There is a, an intermediate status as well, which is basically full-time guard duty. Um, and this is what people may have heard of as Title 32 status, which is when they're still under the command of the governor. So the governor still has operational control, but they are doing it for a federal mission. So frequently this is, say, immigration issues or sometimes things like the COVID response, which was a national emergency, but ha being handled at state levels. Mm -hmm. So they're being pulled, they're, they're doing something at the request of the president or the secretary of defense, um, but still under state operational control, um, but the federal government pays for it. So you can imagine that the states really like it when the federal government does this because they get to do something with the National Guard, but they don't have to pay for it. Sure, sure. Uh, who doesn't love free money? Exactly. And this relationship in theory should be largely cooperative. But in practice, we know that there's oftentimes a lot of tension between governors and the presidents, particularly if they're of different political parties or they have different ideologies or sort of visions for the country. I think one of the most famous examples is in 1957, segregationist governor of Arkansas, Orville uh, Faubus. I ordered the Arkansas National Guard to prevent the Little Rock Nine from registering at Central High School. High School and President Eisenhower then calls in active duty troops like the 101st Airborne, I think, uh, to come and enforce integration in Little Rock uh, High School. Now, so what are and, you know, recently uh, we've seen tensions between the Oklahoma governor and President Biden over COVID vaccination policy and all of this. What are some of the big kind of tensions in addition to, you know, the ones we've kind of discussed that can arise from this kind of dual control or, um, you know, kind of contest between a, a governor and the president? Yeah, this is a great question. So one that I have to mention, even though for, for my purposes, it's fairly minor, but it was just um, upheld by a court case. Uh, one is the right of um, National Guard members to unionize. Um, which, of course, federal military members cannot. Right. Right. So and, and that right uh, has just been upheld. So uh, National Guard members can unionize for certain purposes. They obviously can't uh, collectively bargain against the federal government, but they can collectively bargain at the state level. Um, so that's one, um, because that was something that the federal government was concerned about. Right. But it's not that one's not a, a really serious issue. There are a couple of other tensions that show up that I think are much more serious. One, as you mentioned, what is the covid issue that um, brought up a lot of other personnel policies. Um, and this one, actually, I can't say very much about because it, it is currently being contested in the courts. Mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, the Texas governor. Um, I think eventually joined by the Alaska governor. So the, the Oklahoma governor had his court case and that, that kind of went through the system and it, I don't think happening anymore. But the Texas case um, has the potential to upend, you know, 200 years worth of legislation because a Texas judge, a test Texas district judge, uh, has basically ruled that um, all the legislation that all of the legislation and all of the court precedent that say that the federal government can um, 
issue personnel policy and organizational policy that the National Guard uh, units have to follow, that that's all unconstitutional. Now, this may go before the Supreme Court. Um, and with this Supreme Court, we have no idea what would happen. Mm -hmm. um, it may be resolved on a technicality, but uh, everyone, you know, keep your eyes peeled um, for whether 200 years worth of precedent is about to be overturned. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the, the last one that I'll point out um, is the one that you mentioned, uh, sort of when the um, actual use, actual employment of the God is sort of... Um, set up against what the federal government wants to do. And in this case, so obviously there have been many, many times when a governor wanted to do something that the federal government didn't want him to do. What has happened in most of these cases, so in the case you mentioned with Eisenhower and in several other civil rights era cases, what happened was the, the president federalized that National Guard in order to get them out from under the governor's control, sort of um, remove them from the governor's control and use them uh, for the federal government's purposes, um, that worked and has worked so far only because there has never been any significant resistance to it. We do not know what would happen if um, a president tried to federalize a National Guard and either the governor significantly resisted or the National Guard itself significantly resisted. We simply have that has never happened. We don't know what would happen if it did. Because the leaders of each National Guard are appointed by the governor. Isn't yes, that right? That is correct. So there's a political loyalty issue there as well that requires a tremendous amount of professionalism, I would think, on the part of the state adjutant general. Yeah. You spoke about southern border missions as well, and I, we talked about it a little bit in the intro. Um, we see a lot of National Guards people and service members down at the southern border. Um, and yet the kind of role of the military in domestic security and border security is somewhat contested. Um, this is kind of solidly in the mission set of the Coast Guard doing border security and border patrol, but not, um, not traditionally thought of as an army mission or a kind of Department of Defense mission. Um, is that correct from a historical precedent standpoint? Um, you know, is that a a popular conception today that we just aren't used to it? Like, why is this so controversial? So the use of the military and the National Guard for border security, obviously, first of all, two separate things, because uh, governors of border states such as Texas, California, New Mexico, etc., uh, Florida, um, can use their National Guard to enforce their own border security. And that is, of course, clearly within their mandates as governors using the National Guard. The federal government uh, can also use the National Guard, usually in a Title 32 status, to enforce federal immigration law, right? So now mm -hmm. immigration law is federal and not state law. States don't have their own immigration laws. So the enforcement of federal law, of, of immigration law, would be federal. So the, the federal government can use them to do that kind of thing. Um, there is precedent for using them this way. In fact, a fair amount of precedent. Now, there was a big gap um, in between World War One when, when the military was patrolling the border with Mexico because there was actually a military threat from, from Mexico, right, during World War I. Um, and then there was a big gap until the 1980s. 
But starting in the 1980s, when the war on drugs became official policy um, with the Reagan administration, uh, since then, the deployment of both federal troops and the National Guard to the southern border in particular um, has been fairly regular. Uh, as far as I remember, every president since then has done it. Um, so both Republican and Democratic uh, have have deployed troops this way. And it's important to note that there is also, um, so it's not just National Guard, um, there, there is in fact a, an entire U.S. Department of Defense organization devoted to this kind of thing called JTF North, Joint Task Force North. It originated as Joint Task Force 6 in 1989. Um, and they are tasked to support federal law enforcement agencies in the identification and interdiction of suspected transnational criminal organizations activities um, conducted within and along the approaches to the continental United States. Um, so that is counter drug and counter transnational crime. Um, and of course, after 9-11, counterterrorism was added to that mandate. Right. Um, and so that operates based on support requests from any of its civilian law enforcement agency partners. So what happens is if the DEA or a state's National Guard Bureau wants assistance with something, it sends a request to JTF North and it's, you know, it's there. Um, the kinds of support it can do are almost entirely um, logistical support, right? So um, lots of airlift and ground transportation, some engineering support, some intelligence support though. They are allowed to do some intelligence analysis, preparation, uh, geospatial intelligence, um, they can do, they can also do sort of command and control stuff like coordination among agencies, information sharing, point of integration operations. But uh, yeah, so that's a thing. There is an entire organization devoted to helping law enforcement agencies get support from the federal military if they need it. For mostly transnational crime and transnational issues. Yes. So that that's border stuff, but it can uh, it can happen within the continental United States as well. I want to talk a little bit about within border crime. Uh, in 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protest, then President Trump kind of famously speculated about using the Insurrection Act to call up federal forces and put down riots and protests that were going on across the country. People would then scream, no, 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 there's this thing called posse comitatus, and you're not allowed to do that. Um, I know you have thoughts on this. So uh, where does posse comitatus come from? What is this statute? Um, and how does it apply today? Okay, so the Insurrection Act, just to be very clear, the Insurrection Act is from 1807. Um, and it basically says the president can call out um, both the federal military uh, and the militias at the time for domestic law enforcement purposes, uh, either to enforce federal law or to respond to insurrections, right? And again, there are constitutional clauses, including the guarantee clause, that say that the federal government is responsible for guaranteeing to the states a Republican form of government and to help them against domestic violence if they request it, right? So the difference between the constitutional clause and the Insurrection Act is the constitutional clause says we help them, we the federal government help them if they ask for it. Uh, and the Insurrection Act says the president gets to decide when he wants to do this. So that's the that's the sort of background. So what is what's the origins of the Insurrection Act? Why did they feel the need to clarify this? Um, Aaron Burr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, so that that was kind of flippant. Um, this had been, look, the the early union was characterized by a huge number of tax insurrections, a huge number of um, the, the Whiskey Rebellion, Freeze's Rebellion, um, all kinds of issues where the state honestly had very little interest in enforcing, in, in putting down an insurrection the, because they were federal taxes. I see. Uh, yeah. So you get that, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's where it came from, um, was Americans don't like be paying taxes. The federal government needs money. Now we have a law that says the federal government can collect its money. Okay. <laughs> using the military. So talk to me about Posse Comitatus okay. then. So, so then um, after, World, after the Civil War, uh, you have Reconstruction. And during Reconstruction, basically several of the... Um, most of the former Confederate states refused to ratify the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment is the one that says people are equal and they get civil rights and they get political and social rights guaranteed by the federal government. Not And so the federal government can enforce these rights, even if the state governments are not enforcing them. That was basically the gist. Well, that was one of the gists of the 14th Amendment. The Confederate states refused to ratify this. They were then put under military government by by the union, by the federal government. And then so then you have all of Reconstruction, most of Re then you have the 15th Amendment, which says the states can't discriminate on the basis of race in terms of the states are still in charge of all of the voting and elections stuff. But the federal government says you can't discriminate on the basis of race. The 13th, 14th, 14th and 15th Amendments happened in succession, because every time the federal government passed an amendment, the southern states would find a way to get around it, basically. So finally, you get to 1878. Reconstruction has been going on now for more than 10 years. It's extremely expensive. Um, and Northern Republicans are beginning to find that um, championing black civil rights is not a, an electoral winning strategy for them. Um, so they're getting tired of it in many ways. Most of the enforcement of black civil rights in the South had to be done by the army. Why? Because none of the other law, no other law enforcement agencies existed, basically, with the exception of a few municipal police agencies, none of which was sympathetic to black people. Mm -hmm. Right. So the only enforcement of black rights was happening via the army. By the time the Republicans are tired of Reconstruction, um, the uh, the election of 1876 comes around. The Southern Democrats in Congress put a rider on an army appropriations bill that says you can't the, the governments of the southern states, which are still sort of dominated by Republicans because the army is enforcing black voting rights, the Democrats in Congress put a rider on an army appropriations bill that says these governments and civil officials in the states can't call on the army to help them enforce the law anymore. The Republicans in Congress, that was in uh, 1877. The Republicans wouldn't pass it. So there was no army appropriations bill for 1877. Wow. In 1878, however... Boy, we think that we're having a problem passing right. continuing resolutions. Yeah, they literally just didn't pass an appropriations bill. Nobody in the army got paid. Wow. Unfortunately, <laughs> 1877 was also the year of the Great Upheaval, which was the largest single labor uprising that the U.S. had ever seen, or I think ever would see. Um, and they kind of needed the army. So in 1878, the Democrats tried it again. And this time, the Republicans were like, you know what? Fine. And 
you know, so the basic story of posse comitatus has nothing to do with like deep seated principles of not using the military domestically. It was essentially an agreement between congressional Republicans and congressional Democrats that the federal government would stop allowing the military to be used to enforce black civil rights in the South. Uh, and we can and we know this because the federal government did not stop using the army to do domestic law enforcement at all. It was used by most of the uh, presidents for the next 40 years. What did stop was any use of the federal military in the former Confederate states. So what were they doing then in order to, uh, you know, in the use of the army in a domestic con context? What kinds of things were they suppressing? What kind of law enforcement were they enforcing. Um, so in that period, after the end of Reconstruction and up until World War One, it was almost entirely labor, uh, labor uprising. So mostly strike breaking um, and or suppression of strike related violence in order to uh, enable negotiation. Um, there were some incidences of uh, racial violence in the Northwest, mostly against Asian people. Um, there were a few interventions and and. For, for those purposes, but it was almost entirely labor uprisings um, for that period. We are running out of time, but I do want to ask you what you see as the big or kind of biggest challenge facing the total force when it comes to domestic threats today. The biggest challenge, I think, is political polarization. Um, and I know that that's kind of a buzzword right now, but, you know, we, we talked briefly about the tensions between governors' policies and federal policies and uh, how that spills over into personnel policy and the, and the tensions there. Uh, the total force has to have personnel policies. Personnel policies, um, they've never been uncontroversial, obviously. I'm not going to make a, a silly claim like that. But they're, they are becoming more and more controversial, and that controversy is broadening. And it, what it's doing is breaking down the internal unity of the armed forces to the extent that there was internal unity. And I think that the more we see domestic threats, um, the problem is going to be that you don't have popular consensus on what counts as a threat or where the threat is coming from. And so the decision to do anything about those threats will inevitably appear partisan and will put the military, active, guard, reserve, in a position where they look like and feel like they are being used in partisan ways. Um, and that, I think, is going to be a huge challenge for the Department of Defense to handle. And I think it's going to be a huge challenge for the, uh, for the um, government structure in general to figure out how to deal with. This about ends our time here. But if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us online at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank you, Dr. Khan, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in American civil military relations. And thanks to all of you for listening into our series on modern civil military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode and then rate the podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can grow our community. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army 
for the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.